our microbes are the ones that do the best job making hydrogen. The chemical reactions are more efficient. That efficiency means you get more product. In a state that produces a lot of sugar, it makes a lot of sense to make your hydrogen nearby. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we're talking about hydrogen production from bacteria, nature's little microscopic refineries. Our guest has been working to make these microbes more efficient, and last summer they announced they'd punched through the theoretical ceiling for what was thought possible for hydrogen production per every unit of fuel consumed. We've talked about biofuels in the past in some of our earlier episodes. I was particularly interested in cellulosic ethanol, how to make fuel from the parts of plants that we don't eat. The reason Sugar and corn can be converted to ethanol so easily using the same process Uncle Jesse from Dukes of Hazard is because these products are made from glucose. But We've discovered with cellulosic ethanol, something has to break down the complex sugars that make up wood and stalks of other rigid plant matter into glucose first. That something typically takes the forms of little tiny microbes. This technology that we're talking about today skips a step. These microbes, particularly bacteria, produce biofuels directly from the cellulose waste products they produce. So some bacteria produce glucose from cellulose, but others can produce ethanol directly as well as methane or natural gas and other microbes, like the ones we're discussing today, produce hydrogen, or pure H2. And like cellulosic ethanol, they're using the discarded products from corn and wheat. Have you ever finished off some tasty corn on the cob and wondered what could be done with all those cobs? Well, both your hunger and your curiosity have now been satisfied. So, how did our guests do it? How did they circumvent the laws of nature to create microbes that are hydrogen-producing dynamos? The simple answer is that they were modified to do more of this... Mm. <laughs> then this. And yes, I do know that bacteria reproduce by mitosis. My dad's a microbiologist. My mom was a biology teacher. Oh, quick personal story. I don't know how they did it where you went to school, but our high school biology class in Louisiana taught backdoor sex ed by having a chapter on the human reproductive system. I was in honors biology and had a different teacher, but my sisters, on the other hand, had two weeks of this kind of talk from our mom. <laughs> she also became famous for showing a video of a live birth and then rewinding the tape so the baby goes back up. Well, you know. That may have left some of the students with some confused ideas about responsibility. Back to our guests, one more cool thing about the bacteria they use, it's the same bacteria that's found in those hot undersea vents that people like James Cameron can't get enough of. Well, apparently those bacteria which are called, appropriate enough, Thermotoga maritima, are ideal for hydrogen production. Our guest says the hot environments, which they call home, is one of the reasons they're so efficient converting this food into fuel. I love these kind of technologies because they just feel right. It seems like whenever you make a machine act like nature, that just seems to be the right design. When you make nature itself produce useful products, that's even better. Before we get started, I wanted to mention that there was a period last summer where I was running really low on guest ideas, and my wife Ashley spent some time on her lunch breaks looking for ideas for me. This was one of them. 
Although at first I was like, yeah, okay, sweetie. Oh, wait, that's actually pretty good. So here we are. Love you, honey. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Blum, Biological Sciences Professor and Associate Director of the Nebraska Center for Energy Sciences Research at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Dr. Blum and his team last July announced their discovery regarding the Thermatoga bacteria, and it was this article that my wife shared with me. Dr. Blum has been with the school since 1990. He received the school's Innovator of the Year Award in 2015. In addition to this research, which we're discussing today. He's also developed a method to make ethanol less expensive to produce. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Paul Blum. We're here with Paul Blum, School of Biological Sciences at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And Paul, when you say bacteria creates hydrogen, is it pure H2 or is it a molecule? It's molecular hydrogen. That's two protons. That's actually the hydrogen we use for energy. Mm-hmm. And the bacteria make that, and they also make some other gases, right? They're making carbon dioxide, and because they're growing in water, there's a little water vapor there, too. So to make it pure, you got to separate those things. And we would use the same thing that we use to make hydrogen from natural gas, which is called molecular sieving. Molecular sieving is essentially small pieces of solid materials that you pump your gases through and they selectively filter the gases. So in one version of this, you add a mixed gas and out the other side comes just the hydrogen. And that's the same method that's used to make most hydrogen, even using a process called steam reforming, which starts with natural gas and heats it up and converts it. So not quite as simple as the H2 bubbles up out of the fluid that the bacteria is in and you can capture it. Right. In this case, it's H2 and separately it's CO2 bubbling up. You've got to separate those two. Okay. And then usually people don't want any water in their hydrogen, so you've got to get rid of the water. Right, right. Now, your breakthrough was making a certain bacterium produce more hydrogen than was theoretically considered possible. And I always love it how there's these theoretical limits out there that are always being broken. So why was this particular theoretical ceiling so certain and how did you break it? The theoretical limit here is something that's typical of biological processes, and it's got to do with how we calculate what the organism, in this case the bacteria, can do. We use what are called metabolic formulas, and the problem with these formulas is they tend to leave out the cost of the living organism. In our case, these organisms have to grow, their cells divide, and so what we did was we figured out a way to shift the energy cost of cell division, and that left more energy for hydrogen production. The limit was exceeded in our case. Who knows how much farther past we can go? And the reason that's important is because of the cost of what we start with, which is the sugar. The more hydrogen you get per sugar, the better off you are. And the other piece of this that's important, Jay, is the idea that you could do this for all sorts of other things that microbes like bacteria make. You could do the same thing with ethanol or Mm -hmm. amino acids, which we consume as nutraceuticals, or antibiotics. All of these things are made by microbes. And getting more of your product per amount of starting material is of value. That's why it matters. Now, the theoretical limit was four units of hydrogen for every unit of glucose. That was the old ceiling. Now, your breakthrough says raise it from a ratio to almost six to one, about 5.7. So let's talk about 
a practical application for this. I'm curious what the food would look like. What would be the most efficient way to produce the proper glucose feedstock for this bacteria? So I guess the question is, what are you feeding it and what's the most efficient way to make that food for the bacteria to convert into hydrogen? Yes, glucose is a sugar. They're all different types of sugars and most of them come from plants. And the best sugar would be one that comes from the plant material called cellulose, the non-food portion of a plant. Mm -hmm. Examples of that would be what we call corn stover or wheat straw. These are the parts of those plants that we don't eat. And the cellulose is made out of glucose. This is the same idea behind what's called second generation ethanol for car fuel. That would be the best place to get the starting material to make the hydrogen. Would there be any part of the cellulose left over that would have to be disposed of? Or does the bacteria eat everything that you're putting in there in the mix? That's a good question. Depending upon how raw the cellulose is, yes, there could be other things, and those will have to be dealt with. And most importantly is the lignin, which is part of what plants are made out of. And that lignin is a tremendous challenge for the ethanol industry, what to do with all the lignin. For sure, that would be relevant. But microbes are pretty good at consuming things. It's not too difficult to engineer or modify them so they can use the lignin also. So you could get all of the material consumed and converted into hydrogen. So what do you think is your go-to plant? Is it corn or is it wheat? Oh, yeah. In the Midwest, in Nebraska, right, it's a corn belt state. Yeah. And there's sugar everywhere. And that's very important. This is the energy sector, right? You know that that's all about consolidation and then distribution and how best to do that and what are the limits on that. In a state that produces a lot of sugar, it makes a lot of sense to make your hydrogen nearby. You don't have to truck it. Local production, I think, is the key. What's the scale of local production? That's a good question. What do you do with the hydrogen, I think, is the answer. You can use hydrogen for all sorts of things. Fuel cells is sort of what I had in mind. I'm always interested because it sounds to me like a lot of this has been figured out. But let's fast forward a couple years and pretend this is a commercial operation. I take it the bacteria would be living in some sort of anaerobic digester unit that you'd be feeding the cellulose into the water. And for those who aren't familiar with that, anaerobic digesters are used in a lot of municipal water treatment, right? Absolutely. And becoming an important source of another energy gas called methane, which is natural gas. And many wastewater treatment facilities that operate anaerobic digesters are now capturing that methane and using it for their local operation. Yes, we'd be using an anaerobic digester type of setup. The key word there is anaerobic. We want a way to control how much oxygen is around. The organisms that make methane and the organisms that I work on don't like oxygen. The other thing you'd want to put in there is additional nutrients. So besides your cellulose or your glucose, you need to add a little bit more food. And importantly for our bacteria, we and other people have shown that you can use municipal wastewater to supply those nutrients. So essentially you've got a free source of food. You just got to give them the cellulose or the sugar. And so obviously a water treatment facility is a perfect place to set up hydrogen production because it's like a plug-in module. It's all set to go. That's very important because wastewater treatment, which I did for years, consumes a lot of energy to yeah. process that water. 
So you think that you could drop your bacteria in an existing municipal water treatment plant, or would you want to do another anaerobic digester next to the ones that are currently? So that's a really good question. So here's the deal. What you want to do is make sure that all the sugar you feed them turns into hydrogen. And if you use municipal wastewater inside of an anaerobic digester, there's a lot of other microbes in there, and they want the glucose too. One of the advantages of how we do it is we use hot water, and that stops all the other competition from consuming the glucose. Some of these wastewater facilities, like I said, those anaerobic digesters are processing solids, purifying the water, so you got to keep that there. Mm-hmm. Um, you might want to add a second one to generate the hydrogen. Right. And you've touched on this. Looking into the bacteria that you're using, it says the bacteria likes the heat and likes it between 130 and 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, let's talk a little bit about the energy penalty there because you'd have sure. to heat up the water, right? Absolutely. There's a trade-off. One of the trade-offs is the one I mentioned. You end up having more control over your process, but the deficit or the cost of that extra energy is really important to consider. So we have to start out by adding energy to heat up the water. But once our microbe starts growing, it produces heat, waste heat. This is a byproduct of fermentation or any microbial process bacteria. That heats up their environment. You don't have to heat it up anymore. And I'll give you some examples of why this is so important. In the wine industry, when people use yeast to make white wine, those yeast heat up their tank too hot to ensure the quality of the wine. So in fact, those tanks are chilled to prevent those microbes from generating too much heat. So even though our microbe prefers heat, it will take care of producing most of what it needs once it gets grown. You can genetically modify the bacteria to thrive in cooler temperatures, room temperature? As far as I know, that would be really challenging. And you'd lose the benefit of controlling what happens to your sugar. You do really need to control that. Mm-hmm. If you were starting with something like plant cellulose, that material is loaded with microbes and they will consume that material once you add some water. You don't want them to do that. you got to stop them from doing that. And that's a big challenge for renewable fuels or anything that's using a biomass within an agricultural resource. you got to control the process. The second thing is that our microbes are the ones that do the best job of all microbes making hydrogen. And part of the reason is because when you're growing at high temperature, the chemical reactions are more efficient. That efficiency means you get more product, you get more hydrogen. I had one more just technical question about the bacteria. You said the bacteria were discovered around these thermal vents in the ocean. Do they have to be in salt water or can they be in fresh water? I was thinking about the municipal water plants. That's certainly not salt water. So to kind of educate us there. They are what we call a marine organism. So they prefer a little bit of salt, but they can tolerate reduced salt. The amount of salt is really not an issue. Okay. I think this will be difficult to explain, but maybe you've thought about this. How much energy density are we talking about here? How much bacteria could grow in a single space and how much hydrogen could it create? So that's really important. I think the first thing to understand here is hydrogen tends to be used after it's been compressed. For example, in jet fuel, which uses molecular hydrogen, it's compressed to about 700 atmospheres, and that allows you to put it in a very small space. Most of hydrogen is one of the highest energy density materials that we know about. But it's all in part because you compress it because it's a gas. We've done some modeling for how we would do this in a 1,000-liter tank, and we would be able to produce 
about 58 moles of hydrogen per mole of glucose by increasing the concentration of the microbe in the tank. About 10 times what you saw in our recent publication. And the reason it's higher is because we've increased the amount of bacteria in that space. They just end up making more. And then once you get that hydrogen out of there, like I said, you've got to separate it and then you compress it. And either you store it compressed or you transport it compressed, something like that. Is it too early to talk about the cost effectiveness of creating hydrogen this way versus conventional methods like steam reforming and electrolysis and all those big industrial hydrogen production processes out there? Certainly it's all cost-driven. At the present time, because of fracking, Natural gas is pretty cheap, right? And so it's hard to compete on a cost basis. But if you think about the trade-off between continued consumption of fossil fuels and climate change, I think there's a pivot point there. The way I look at it is when and if climate change precipitates a move away from fossil fuels, so let's say it's a carbon tax or something, it's really important to have technology prepared to make these sorts of fuels a different way. I don't think it's too early. I would say this is prepared to be ready to have things that are plug and play so that if and when it becomes important, you're ready to go. Of course, there are renewable ways to make hydrogen. Wind energy is one way to do that. But of course, using wind consumes very precious metals, palladium and platinum. The advantage of our system is they don't. It just requires sugar. But I also think there's capital and investors that are very tuned into this. You know, Paul, I had this mantra. A lot of people who I've worked with in the past have used this, and it's everything everywhere all the time, where anything has a place. As far as hydrogen production, I think this does have a role. And so let's get in the time machine and go up a couple years once this is commercial. Where do you see these, and how are they used? My personal goal is to try to get a very small unit that makes this possible to do, such that you could have this at a gas station and the gas station operator would pour in glucose and the customer would come in and fuel up their hydrogen needs in their car and their own fuel cell. So a hydrogen refueling station, but local production. One of the problems with hydrogen is moving it around because you have to compress it because it's a gas. That hasn't stopped people from moving other gases around, but we haven't really developed that for hydrogen. Either you're going to produce it and consume it locally, or you're going to have to build the infrastructure to transport it. Well, I think you also had a suggestion earlier, which was this idea of using municipal water treatment plants to stage your equipment and possibly run it out of there. Absolutely. Wastewater treatment plants tend to be on the grid, and because of the trend in how power is managed over grids with energy trading going on, that could also make a lot of sense. And always there are benefits with scale in terms of energy production. But Toyota pushes the fuel cells, and they have a pretty big vision on fuel cells. So the idea of adapting that may be relevant as well. So sort of local production, local consumption, but maybe distributed as well. It says you're now working with a group called New Tech Ventures, the commercialization arm of the University of Nebraska, to patent this technology. What's your next step at this point? So thank you for asking that question. A patent was submitted on this technology about three years ago, and that's about how long it takes for the U.S. Patent Office to review an application. So if that patent issues and the claims are granted, then there's intellectual property around this technology, which typically attracts investors. With that in mind, um, I and another professor in Nebraska set up 
a limited liability corporation called Molecular Trade Engineering, and that entity would pursue private investment. It's interesting you say you formed an LLC. One of my first guests was Genera Energy out of Tennessee. They were also on the biofuels side of the equation. Most controversial question of the day, would you ever consider leaving the school to work on this commercially? Well, that's a good question. I have a lot of other technology efforts going on, and each of them is at different phases. So doing something like that is not a problem for me. I would consider doing it. Starting a small business is probably best pursued by youth. I'm not young anymore. <laughs> I'd rather see young people take it on. But I understand there needs to be a fair amount of mentoring and sort of focus and that sort of thing. I can certainly play that type of role. Sit there in the boardroom and, yes, not approvingly. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the role I can play is on the technology side, how to adapt this, where to put it, develop the contacts with the companies, that sort of thing. All right. Paul Blum, University of Nebraska, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. That was Dr. Paul Blum, professor of biological sciences at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Dr. Blum and a colleague formed Molecular Trait Evolution as a spinoff company with focus on microbes for water treatment, yes, fuel, and human health. I'll have to link that as well as more information to the research discussed today and plenty of pictures. You can find that at energy-cast.com and on Instagram at Host Energy. Again, want to thank Dr. Blum for his time and my wife Ashley for finding this guest for me. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 47. We've got so much more to come as we head into our third year of this podcast. I just got back from a fusion conference in D.C. hosted by our good friend of the show, Steve Dean, and was able to get several interviews in while I was there. So stay tuned. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.